No one knows who wrote it. No one knows where it was written. No one knows when it was written. No one knows to whom it is addressed. Sounds a little shaky. <laughs> but none of that information is specifically stated in this book or by any other book of the Bible. Hebrews is a mystery among New Testament literature. Maybe Paul is the author. But those who have studied Paul's writings know that the vocabulary, syntax, style, and, and theology, they don't sound like Paul. Maybe another apostle. Even more unlikely since the apostles were never shy about claiming their writing as their own and claiming authority based on who they were. You ought to listen to what I'm writing to you because I'm who I am, you know. Maybe it was Priscilla. That would be a good one. An early evangelist in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. Could be. She was a contemporary of Paul. And she may have wanted to consolidate the church teaching. And do it anonymously. Anonymously because, you know, the attitude toward women at the time, even in the church. Did I mention she was a contemporary of Paul? <laughs> what about Apollos? He was known as an eloquent and passionate preacher. He's mentioned as having an almost cult-like following. We just don't know. But this much we do know, it is written by a well-educated rabbinical Jew with Hellenistic background. Even the title is not said anywhere in the whole book. Theory is that some person in the early church says, you got a Bible book here, it doesn't have a title. Hmm, Hebrews, that's a good one, and put it on there. It's not an epistle. It doesn't sound like one. It's not written like an epistle. It's not a gospel. No. What is it? In the 13th chapter, in the 22nd verse, it refers to words of exhortation. Ah, it's a sermon written in the best, most poetic Greek of the whole New Testament. A 13 chapter sermon. <laughs> That'd be hard for us to sit through, but not in that day. They didn't have TV, internet, literal literacy. And so this sermon, this 13-chapter sermon, in the 10th chapter, we have the climax. Sermons have a pastoral purpose for a particular congregation at a particular time. I used to be flattered by Dr. Gaddy asking me to preach so often in his absence until I figured out that he was determined to put sermons in a congregational context. I was here, part of the congregation. I could preach to you. Thanks for that. <laughs> I had a seminary professor who was fond of referring to the practice of sending students out in rotation among small churches in the region as 
bootlegging the gospel. No bootlegging here. This sermon called Hebrews, start to finish, has a community and literary context. One biblical scholar calls the author of Hebrews the preacher. And he describes the church receiving the preacher's sermon as this, and please excuse the clumsy use of male pronouns in this. He says, the preacher is not preaching into a vacuum. He is addressing a real and urgent pastoral problem, one that seems astonishingly contemporary. His congregation is exhausted. They are tired, tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar and whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going. They're even tired of Jesus. Their hands droop, their knees are weak, attendance is down, they're losing their confidence. The threat to this congregation is not that they're charging off in the wrong direction. It's that they don't have enough energy to charge off anywhere. The threat here is that worn down, worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community, and falling away from the faith. And the author of Hebrews' answer is surprisingly theological rather than practical. The answer to the church's problems? Be caught up in what God is doing in Christ. No program, no campaign, no consultant can substitute for experiencing the love of God in Christ and then provoking each other to love and good deeds. And this Greek word provoke caught my attention and wouldn't let me go. The word for provoke in Greek is paroxuno, and the English word we get out of it is paroxysm. Now, it took Edgar Allan Poe to teach me that vocabulary word, and that's okay because they say in his day he knew every word in existence in the English language and probably made up several more. Paroxysm seems like an odd word in relation to love and good deeds. I mean, it's a, it's a downright violent word, only used a couple of times in the New Testament and the other times used in a very angry kind of uh, context. Listen to the synonyms for paroxysm. Spasm, attack, fit, burst, bout, convulsion, seizure, outburst, outbreak, eruption, explosion, flare-up, throws, ebullition, boutade. That last French word I didn't know, my wife had to teach me how to sort of pronounce it. But those don't sound like sweetness and light, you know? I could say paroxysm and lackadaisical. Lackadaisical love does not make the cut. But the love here is, is explosive and convulsive love spasm. Love that shakes us up from top to bottom. The book of Hebrews taken as a whole calls for an upheaval of love. When and where and how does this paroxysm of love happen to us today? We would hope that worship could be a setting for this experience, but sometimes we lack paroxysms necessary to be excited and to excite others, 
Nothing is as contagious as genuine excitation and enthusiasm, but often worship does not offer that, especially in a church like ours where demonstrations of emotion are not thought of as appropriate and are kind of considered beneath our notion of dignity. A man was in a church like ours and was continually shouting out, Amen! Amen! The usher walked up to him and said, Sir, you're going to need to quieten down so we can keep going with, with church. He said to him, But I got religion! <laughs> to which the usher said, Well, you did not get it here, so <laughs> cut it out. But going the other extreme, we can't make the mistake of thinking that mere emotion is genuine love and substitute it for love and acting. We're all aware, some more painfully than others, that emotion does not automatically equal spirituality. I was manipulated and I manipulated emotion as the experience of God instead of the emotion of experiencing God for a long time. Paroxysms of love can happen pleasantly and joyfully on occasion, but not usually. According to the totality of the Hebrew and Judeo tradition and virtually every other major religion, experiencing God's love is a struggle. Paroxysms of love are not always pretty. Sometimes they're painful. Northminster was born in a corporate paroxysm of love. Bursting on the scene with zeal internally, uphill externally, Northminster drew together and grew together, nurtured by incomparable passion. The good old days of the beginning of Northminster are often remembered with emphasis on the happy and enjoyable times. But folks, those of you who were there know that that paroxysm of love did not come easily. You know how hard it was. The anticipation of the future coupled with the fear of the unknown. The joy of the moment coupled with existential risk. The comfort within the community coupled with the threat from the outside. But it was that very danger that shaped that paroxysm of love. Seize the day became be seized by the day. So some 30 years later, how do we catch that spark? How do we ignite that long smoldering fire? Well, if we were part of a former iteration of this denomination, we could always have a revival. <laughs> a revival gave a ch chance for folks to repent and resolve to do better and change things, get the spirit. But the results were spotty at best, and it took the next revisal, revival to juice up the joint again. I remember a well-meaning brother talking to the pastor about a certain sister. And he was upset because she got saved at every revival. <laughs> now he said, it's okay to rededicate your life at every revival, but not to get saved at every revival due to what my Pentecostal grandmother would call that damnable doctrine of once saved, always saved. <laughs> the preacher said, well, 
The problem with our over-eager sister was not that she got saved too often, but that she didn't get saved often enough. Salvation for individuals as well as a congregation is a constant process. For the author of Hebrews, this I can't say the word in the verb form because it doesn't exist, but there in the Greek it was a verb. The paroxysm, paroxysmating, I guess, is as approximate as we can get. Provoking each other in love keeps us alive. And the text before us this morning pictures paroxysms of love as gifts we receive. What's the difference between just going to church or working with a committee and experiencing a paroxysm of love? I love teaching vocabulary to secondary students. My fascination with words goes back to the days when I would read the dictionary, even in the bathroom. We won't get into that. I discovered that advanced vocabulary, like it appears on the ACT and SAT, was a challenge for my students. The words didn't seem to stick. So I developed a seven-fold vocabulary process to attempt the, to increase their learning. The crux of the system was adding a visceral dimension to the word. We called it visceral vocabulary. The idea was not to just learn about it, but to live the word. For example, the word was ubiquitous. Okay, So I gave them all stacks of sticky notes. And I said, write ubiquitous on every one of these you can and plaster them all over the school which they loved doing and which the principal did not love them doing. You get the idea. Live the word. Picking up the notes was a part of that process. It allowed the students to, to designate visceral experience and I, I asked them to do so. They loved the visceral vocabulary experience for paroxysm because in it, they could jump up and interrupt class anytime they wanted to. Just jump up, speak up, shout out, run out to illustrate paroxysm. There's another one of those that the principal didn't particularly enjoy very much. <laughs> they lived the word, you see. They participated in the word. Church means visceral spirituality. Becoming the love we preach. When the spontaneous eruption of liberation and grace of a new church ebbs, the church gradually becomes an institution. And what were the new, bold ways of doing church becomes rules and shoulds. And when we're shooting all over ourselves and others, the excitement and adventure are quashed by heavy-handed demand to do things the right way. The mission of the church is to help create the opportunity for people to experience the love of God in Christ, paroxysms of love, through energized worship, which glimpses the presence of God, through evocative education, which sparks spiritual quests for truth, through dynamic circles of relationship within the church, through transformative ministry to real people in the real world, 
through challenging systems which dehumanize and deny justice, the church can be a significant platform for launching paroxysms of love. And as the church encounters the world, the world itself can become such a platform for experiencing that love provoked. I think about my life, and I think about those paroxysms of love in great and small ways. Small provocations of love occur when I work with others and am challenged to love more fully and do good more deeply. I've experienced upheavals of of love in, in worship when I'm laid bare before God. I experienced a paroxysm of love feeling your hands upon my head in ordination, and I've not been the same since. Great provocations of love, great paroxysms, stay with us and make us more fully in God's image. In this last year or so, with racial reckoning in our nation, Black Lives Matter ringing in our collective consciousness, and now with two trials capturing our collective national attention over race, I'm reminded of an experience which totally transformed my perspective on race. I was a sophomore in college at Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. As a side hustle to my job as a full-time college student, I was a weekend traveling evangelist. I preached youth revivals all around the state of Arkansas, not saying I was good, but I did rack up the most baptisms of any preacher anywhere in Arkansas in one month, according to the Arkansas Baptist magazine. Now one day in the cafeteria, going about my business, a person looked at me kind of quizzically, and I looked back and said, what? She said, how in the world do you do it? I said, uh, do what? How can you get up and preach the love of God and be as prejudiced as you are toward blacks? I've heard you tell jokes at their expense, talk them down, pass on racial stereotypes, I know you were Mr. Rebel in your high school and proudly flew the rebel flag at games and even on your car. You're one of the racist people I ever met. I was gobsmacked. I couldn't say anything. I had no defense. She was right. I left there and I walked down past my dorm toward the Washita River, which right ran right behind the good old Conger dorm. I sat down by the river and thought and thought and the sun set on me still sitting on the riverbank crying, shouting, begging for forgiveness for a chance to make it right. I woke up the next morning on the wet grass and I stood up a changed person. I know much had gone on before to bring me to that point but I will never forget when God brought me to my knees through a provocation of love. She spoke a word, and that, prox- that provocation, that paroxysm, changed everything. It also changed the number of baptisms, and they plummeted uh, greatly because I started preaching about social justice issues and 
Come to find out for some reason, going to the town hall instead of going to hell was just not the same. But that night by the riverside was a paroxysm of love that still resonates today. And so I keep returning to that description of the church in Hebrew. If that scholar's right about the state of that church and the preacher in Hebrews is the preacher to that church, then that preacher in Hebrews is preaching to us. We are that church, weary and well-doing, so few trying to do so much for so many, tired of holding on, holding up, holding firm, holding it all together. What can produce the paroxysms of love we need to survive survival mode? Only the love of God in Jesus Christ can do that can make us more aware of the paroxysms of love around us, which we miss so often. Only the love of God in Jesus Christ can provoke others to provoke love and good needs in us. And the most loving good deed I think we might do right now is to share the good news of what God in Christ is doing in this congregation. Share it with someone who needs a little good news right about now. We have a distinctive witness in this community and beyond through YouTube. We offer grace to those who have known the gracelessness of others. We offer justice to those who have known no justice. We offer a voice to those who have long been silenced. We offer community to those who have felt left out and pushed out. We offer a way to God for those who have lost their way in the world. We offer the possibility in our worship and in our work, the possibility of a paroxysm of love that can transform the lives of people who need it so much. And in turn, those caught up in paroxysms of God's love experienced through us, those that we have invited, those that we have made feel welcome, they will bring with them the possibility of new paroxysms of love to us. We are weary and well-doing, but they will have fresh legs. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They are well and rested and bring a desperately needed energy to us. We feel like we've run out of new ideas, but new people will bring the promise of new perspectives with them. The paroxysm of love they need to live. Those out there, those who are listening, those who are questioning, those who are struggling, those who are searching. What they need to live is what Christ has given us to share. And when we do, it becomes the paroxysm of love Northminster needs to live on and on.